0: So, today uh, we're going to talk about the. We, we've talked about primary productivity on a global scale last time. Um, and today we're going to talk about what regulates that productivity. In other words, last time we just de- talked about, on average, the amount of carbon biomass that was distributed among the. Um, the ecosystems of the globe, and we talked about efficiencies of transfer of that biomass through food webs, etc. Oh, by the way, the one the one universal thing that everybody seems to like are the DVDs at the end of the class, <laughs> which uh, <coughs> which is good. Um, unfortunately, today's class we're not going to have one, but so you have something to look forward to next on Wednesday. I'll show you one at the end uh, that is really one of the cooler ones of. Uh, of the collection, that it has nothing to do with the lecture, but I'm going to show it to you anyway. Um, okay, so so today we're going to talk about what regulates the productivity. We've talked about these complex systems in ecology and the feedback mechanisms. So, in the context of productivity, we're going to talk about the factors, the abiotic factors, the non-living parts of the earth, uh, that regulate this productivity and how the productivity feeds back. On those. And then Wednesday, we're going to put it all together in an analysis of global biogeochemical cycles, how um, the elements on the globe cycle and how that's mediated by organisms. And then that'll be the end of this segment. And when I come back, we're going to move on to population and community ecology, which is, it'll feel like a totally different subject uh, to you. Um, so we'll talk more about organisms and some of you said it was so interesting to see math last time in the last lecture. <laughs> Even if there are just efficiencies, well, when you get to population ecology, you're gonna have real math, gonna have actually have differential equations. So if you like that, you have something to look forward to. If you don't like it, well, it's not too bad. Um, okay. So So today, the lecture will be in two halves. We'll talk about terrestrial productivity and then aquatic productivity and and what regulates it. And um, can you see in the back? Is it or do I need to turn? I'm going to have to turn the lights down. Never mind. Um, So because we have some colored images, so let's start with uh, terrestrial productivity and uh, looking at this map. Oops, wrong ones. I think that might be enough to see it. Uh, Which is a satellite image. You've seen several of these so far. So just showing uh, the gradients of productivity on a global scale, where we're just looking at the land now, where it's green. um, You have high levels of productivity. These are in grams carbon per meter squared per year. Um, Yellow is intermediate, and red is uh, very low levels of productivity. So what? Determines this distribution of productivity in terrestrial ecosystems. Um, Well, got any ideas? This is not hard. What's a key factor in regulating plant growth on land? Light, absolutely. Um, That's a given. But looking at this map, what's probably more important? Water, exactly. If we plot on a global scale, if we go around to all these ecosystems and we look at the average annual rainfall and we plot it against net primary productivity. You all know what NPP is now, right? Net primary productivity. You get a, a graph that looks something like this. Each one of these dots would be an ecosystem. One might, this one, and on oh, this is uh, rain, millimeters rain per year. So this might be the Sahara Desert, and this might be a tropical rainforest. And it, and they scatter, but there's some sort of general relationship like that. Increasing NPP with increasing rainfall. Well, what else? Is probably important. What else is different between the Sahara Desert and the northern US? Temperature. Exactly. Which is not a good example for comparison. Uh, Let's take the tropical rainforest and the northern US. How's that? But you get something like this. In other words, it doesn't always map directly onto temperature alone. But on average, you find that um, places with higher temperature have higher productivity. If there's adequate water. So there's a relationship, there's an interaction between the water and the temperature. Um, So those are the. The key factors for terrestrial ecosystems. now um, now we, what we have there's, so we have light, nutrients, I mean light, rain and temperature, rainfall. What about nutrients? We all know anybody who's had, a, had plants in their room or nurtured a garden knows that nutrients are very important. You have to fertilize in order to get the, the most growth. So, how does that work? Well, now we're going to do an analysis of a terrestrial ecosystem. We're going to use a tree, and in some ecosystems, you have—that's a rock. In case you didn't recognize it, and we have soil. These are components, um, and. We've talked about this over and over and over. Now, photosynthesis is the key, taking up CO2, uh, evolving oxygen. We're going to call this biosynthesis. That's it. The mass from gas. Um, so that's CO2 plus. And now we're going to add something. Now these aren't. I'm not, these are not balanced chemical reactions, okay? These are just to give you an idea of what's going on. So, CO2 plus, there's all the elements required for life, okay? In other words, for a plant to grow, it doesn't only need CO2 and water, Um, it needs all of these elements uh, required for life. And they are converted to organic forms. Of those elements, uh, and then oxygen is evolved. So we're we're in a general sense just modifying the equation for photosynthesis to include all the elements that are required for life. So that's the biosynthesis. Um, and then the tree; these are our leaves. In case you didn't recognize them, that are falling to the soil. And the leaves fall down to the soil and they become what? What is dead organic matter? You learned it last time.
1: It is the whale falling to the
0: bottom of the ocean. And if that was a carcass. But the general term for dead organic matter is called detritus. And there is a detritivore food web, remember? Um, and we had some discussion with students after class whether we were detritivores, because in a sense we are, because we eat dead meat, right? We don't, we don't eat live meat. So, but it doesn't matter. You don't have to know that. Forget that. But it's interesting to think about. Okay. Um, so the leaves fall down to the soil. They're acted upon by the heterotrophic bacteria, the bacteria that use organic carbon, and. What happens is that the, those bacteria and, and fungi and worms and everything that chews on organic matter are responsible for regenerating these elements in the soil. So we're going to call that regeneration. And that's basically simply the back reaction of this. OK? So you're starting with organic carbon and Organic carbon, organic P and S, and it's converting it back to the inorganic forms, so that they're available for the tree to take up again. So this is the cycle of biosynthesis, regeneration, and then taken up again. Some of the feedback I got on the lectures when people said that that. They found it interesting to think about how everything in nature is recycled and used. Now, in some ecosystems there is another form of available nutrients. Um, Calcium here, you have cations, uh, potassium from rocks, magnesium. All of these are also in this equation. When I go dot, 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 it is every element that is required for life. And in some ecosystems, the dissolution of these elements from rocks is an important renewal route for nutrients in the ecosystem. Okay? So these are the two, basically, in terrestrial ecosystems, there's the rock source and there's the regeneration source. And it turns out that different terrestrial ecosystems have different. Relative dependence on these two sources, and this is uh, an interesting phenomena. So tropical rainforest, like in the Amazon, these are the forests that we're concerned about um, losing uh, for for many reasons, and these have essentially no. Number one up here. Tropical rainforests have essentially no renewal of nutrients from, from bedrock. Um, and temperate forests, however, have a combination of one and two. They can have renewal, the bedrock is exposed, and the, the, the water cycle helps dissolve the rock and renews the nutrients to the system. So if we if we look at the uh, soil to biomass ratio of phosphorus and nitrogen in the temperate forest versus the tropical we see something like this. In in the in the tropical rainforest, all of the nutrients in the system are basically tied up in the in the biomass. And it's highly dependent then on this regeneration cycle. You cut down, you you the the trees fall down. It's regenerated. It's taken up right away from the soil. Whereas in the temperate system, you see uh, the opposite, or that there's a much higher proportion of nutrients in the soil uh, relative to the tropical system. And what that means is that if you cut down a tropical rainforest, which they're doing for Converting to farmland, you will only get a few years of productivity out of that farmland, uh, because once you've chopped down the forest and hauled away the trees, you've hauled away most of the nutrients in that ecosystem that are available to fuel productivity, and they can't be renewed from bedrock because they don't have bedrock there. So um, that's one of the tragedies of, of of cutting down these forests, when they probably would have more economic value uh, by harvesting some of the some of the natural Products from the forests. OK, um, so when we get to aquatic productivity we are going to see that we have these same biosynthesis and regeneration processes. So that is what we are going to move to now. Um, and let's look at the distribution of aquatic productivity. Um, Ooh, that's too much. Oh well. Can you see that in the back? Okay, the colors. All right. Um, So now we're just looking at the 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 ocean ecosystem, and the the areas that are blue and green are less productive than the areas that are red and yellow in this system. So you can see all the. Coastal regions, we have coastal upwelling that we're going to talk about a lot um, with um, nutrients fueling that, that is very important. And then the whole North Atlantic here, we'll talk about that. So, um, but before we talk about what regulates aquatic productivity, and now I am going to turn the lights off, I thought I'd give you a tour since you all know what trees look like, but you don't know what Primary producers in ocean ecosystems look like. I'm going to give you a quick tour through the phytoplankton, which, as you know by now, are my favorite organisms. Um, So, aquatic productivity is dominated by these uh, microscopic plants. There are over 20,000 species, but we really have no idea how many there are. Um, Wherever there's water, they exist. They range from 0.5 to um, 1,000 microns in diameter. And as I told you in the first lecture, there's there's as much genetic information in a liter of seawater that contains these primary producers and all the bacteria that um, that they live with than there is in the human genome. So here's some of my favorites. Um, these are uh, marine diatoms. This is a silicon shell. This is a single cell. It's about 30 microns in diameter, uh, and this is made out of amorphous silicon. It's essentially opal, and Here's another one. They come in different shapes and sizes. They're just uh, really incredibly beautiful, um, and people are just now starting to study what what mechanisms are responsible for laying down these exquisite architectures. Here's another one. It looks to me, this always reminds me of the Colosseum for some reason. Um, these are pillboxes-shaped cells, and they have two halves like that. And when they grow. When they divide, one half lays down another half inside of it. Now, doesn't what's going to happen ultimately if these are rigid? They get smaller. Once one, in one lineage gets smaller and smaller and smaller, well, both of them get smaller and smaller. Um, and this cell has this; these group of organisms has this really neat system where, when it gets really tiny. They differentiate into egg and sperm. They mate. And then they make a giant cell again. And they start the whole thing. It's cool. Um, and just to show you some of the things people have studied, people have wondered why they have evolved this very heavy, heavy armor. And, of course, the first thing you think about is, is resistance to predation. Um, but there was never any evidence for that. And so I just found this recent study in Nature that showed shows <coughs> Um, where they actually measured—I thought MIT students would like this—because they actually measured the force that it takes to crush one of these cells. Um, here's here's the, the study. There's a diatom frustule, and they are putting a measured force on it to see what it, what would crush it. And they were able to show that um, that the amount of force that it takes is is enough to sh- to be, have a selective advantage against the crunching. Uh, parts of the zooplankton that eat them. Um, I also want to point out this is from the website of, of Dr. Angela Belcher, who's a professor here at MIT in material sciences, and she's studying diatoms. Um, here's a diatom. Um, she's studying them as a, as a material, this amorphous silicon, looking at the way uh, it's, it's laid down. And she's also studying coccolithophores, which is another group of my favorite organisms. Um, they have these calcium carbonate. Plates again. This is a single cell, but its cell wall is made up of calcium carbonate plates, and they come in all different shapes and sizes. Here's a really weird one uh, with these huge. They're called coccoliths, um, and these cells. This is a, a satellite image of reflection of light, and these cells, um, the calcium carbonate reflects light, and this is a coccolithophore bloom somewhere, I think, in the Bering Sea, uh, and. And we can measure these, but we have no idea what causes a particular species to bloom at a particular point in time. Um, It's a very, it's a one of the challenges in oceanography. Here's another group of organisms, the cyanobacteria. We've talked about them a little bit. Um, These are prokaryotic cells that can fix nitrogen. They're one of the one of the few groups of microbes that can take nitrogen gas from the atmosphere and convert it to ammonia, which draws it in. To the food web. Um, So here's, you can actually see a bloom here of these. That one's called trichodesmium. It grows out in the Atlantic, open Atlantic and Pacific. Here's a bloom of trichodesmium, um, sucking nitrogen into the ecosystem, converting it into ammonia, making it available to the other organisms. Here's the organism we work on, unfortunately, very boring looking, Uh, not as exciting looking as the other ones. Uh, and this is just under a light microscope. These are less than a micron in diameter. But if you shine red, uh, blue light on them, they fluoresce red. The chlorophyll in them fluoresces red. And um, these are the smallest and uh, simplest photosynthetic cell. They have 1,700 genes. And with that, I call them the essence of life because with 1,700 genes uh, they can convert CO2, Nitrogen, phosphorus—all inorganic compounds. Basically, this rock over here, um, into in sunlight, into life. And this happens to be life that dominates the oceans. They're the most abundant cell in the oceans. In some areas, it's about 50% of the total chlorophyll. Uh, so they're basically a lean, mean little photosynthesis machine. And uh, we're trying to understand everything about them. Okay, that was a diversion. Uh, I mean a digression, hopefully not a diversion. Uh, um, So, what regulates aquatic primary productivity? Um, I can turn the lights back on, back to the board. Uh, Before we get into that totally, I want to draw a typical what we call a water column in an aquatic ecosystem, and I have seen this little red sticky thing here. This is from last year, and it says they don't understand these axes. See, I remember from year to year. So, so if you don't understand something I'm doing, because I can tell when students come up afterwards that I've completely lost you. So, um, first of all, oceanographers plot things upside down so that you can envision this. So this is depth. So depth goes down, which makes sense, right? And then whatever we're plotting against depth uh, is on this axis. So in this graph I'm gonna make, we're gonna plot net primary productivity, temperature, nutrients, a bunch of different variables. Okay, and 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 for oceans, this is about we'll we'll just say say 2,000 meters. And for lakes, say 200 meters for a deep lake. So I'm drawing here sort of a generic picture of a water column in either a lake or an ocean. Um, Okay. So we don't have any color. Do we have colored chalk? Not here? Okay. Sometimes it used to float around. Well, I'm gonna to have to you're gonna to have to use your imagination. So first of all, let's plot light as a function of depth. What does that look like? Like that, exactly. It's gonna decay exponentially. And in in lakes this is about ten meters. And in oceans this is about 100 meters. Oh, and this was a question somebody gave in the instant feedback. Somebody said, I, I find it hard to believe that all life in the oceans disappears where there is no more light. And you are absolutely right. It is only the photosynthetic life that disappears where there is no more light. There is lots of life below there that is using organic carbon. So if you are here, that is the answer to your question. Okay. Um, So then, now we're going to plot uh, temperature, which looks something like this. And this is what's called the thermocline. And we can also think of this as density because colder water is more dense than warmer water, right? You remember that. You must have learned that in did you learn that somewhere? Or do you just Did you learn that somewhere? Where did you learn that? Fourth grade. Fourth grade. Great. Well prepared. Uh, so up in the surface, we have biosynthesis here where there's light. And so it's exactly the same. Uh, reaction as we have over here, and analogous to the terrestrial ecosystem, the the production you have in the surface waters, you have phytoplankton photosynthesizing, making organic matter. They're being eaten by zooplankton, by fish uh, that are making feces, et cetera, that are being eaten by the detritivores, but. The net effect of this teeming food web that you saw in the in the DVD last time is that there's going to be organic carbon that falls down below this lit zone, okay? And that was the whale falling down um, to to make not 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 purposefully, but falling down and making carbon available to the food web in the deep water. So down here you have regeneration. So this is light in the light, and this is in the dark in this system. But it's directly analogous to uh, the biosynthesis and regeneration system there. So the other thing we want to plot on this is nutrients. They are drawn down to very low levels in the surface water in the lit layer uh, because the phytoplankton are sucking them up. They are nutrient limited. They are sucking up the nitrogen, phosphorus, etc. And then as that carbon and all of that range down to the deep water, it is regenerated and the nutrients are regenerated. So that is why you see this gradient. Of low nutrients here and high nutrients here because the bacteria in the deep water are uh, breaking down the carbon and releasing them. Okay, so, so if we look at this map, um, we can see that for, for aquatic ecosystems, obviously water's not limiting, right? So water isn't an important regulator. Not, light is a very important regulator of productivity. Down to about um, in this region. And nutrients, it turns out, are very important. And it's nutrients that really um, determine the tapestry of this map that we're looking at. And what I'm going to do most for the rest of the class is explain in in, in lakes and oceans how. The physical forces make these nutrients available in certain regions more than in other regions, and explain this. Okay. So first, let's let's look at lake ecosystems. Um, so what? What? Oops. What we're showing here is. Is a a year in the life of a a temperate lake. So this might be the Mystic Lakes out in Arlington, or something like that—a lake that, well, maybe that doesn't freeze over. I don't know. But anyway, a lake that freezes over in the winter. So let's start during the summer, and and here's this this basic graph showing the thermocline, the nutrient depletion in the surface. And um, this one indicates that you actually have oxygen depletion in the deep water because of all of this organic matter from productivity raining down um, and being consumed, consumed by heterotrophic organisms that consume oxygen. Um, so, as fall comes, this is the important part. You see that this ther- this, in the summertime this layer is, is mixed, um, so it is uh, isothermal. In the fall, the, you have the, the winds and, and the surface cools, and as this density gradient here starts to break down, um, do the cooling in the winds. And so you have this mixing, it's called fall overturn, which entrains these nutrients from the deep water into the surface. So that's one way you get the, the nutrients from the deep water back up into the surface. Whereas in the summertime, this gradient is maintained because of this. This density barrier, and the mixing can't break, break this down, um, and then in the winter, you have the ice uh, cover that obviously everything then is just isothermal. there's not much going on, but there is some photosynthesis. and then in the spring, the surface waters start to warm up, uh, the ice melts, you have overturn, and it brings the water up from, from the deep water now. In the in the ocean in in lakes this can mix all the way to the bottom, okay? In the oceans there's no force of nature that can mix all the way down to 2,000 meters. So you have this thermocline in the oceans, but it's it's in a relatively small fraction of the total water column. So the scale here is 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 way off. We're going from 100 meters down to 2,000. So in the ocean it's just this tiny little all this action in the surface. So we need another mechanism. We can't we can't mix all the way down to the deep ocean. Um, So we need another mechanism for bringing nutrients to the surface. And we're going to talk about there's four different ways. There's four different ways that the deep water nutrients are brought back up where there's light because you have to have light for photosynthesis to use the nutrients. And one is episodic mixing. I'm just going to list them, and then we're going to go through them. Coastal upwelling. Equatorial upwelling Whoops. And on much longer time scales, the what's called the oceanic conveyor belt in quotes. Which is basically global ocean um, circulation. So let's let's go through these. Um, in the oceans, episodic mixing. Let's go back. Now, pretend just pretend this is an ocean and that this goes down to 2,000 meters and there's a thermocline. What happens in the ocean is that you just have little episodic mixing events that erode right here. To give little bursts of nutrients injected into the into the lit area. Um, that's season that's seasonal mixing, but it never mixes all the way to the bottom. And <clears throat> we can see, let's see, I'll show you where. This this right here is the the North Atlantic's bloom, and in the springtime you see. A major bloom there due to this episodic mixing in the North Atlantic which we have high winds and a lot of mixing okay so there are also um, ocean currents cause this coastal upwelling phenomenon um, along especially along the western coasts of, can- of of continents and I don't have time to go into th- that you need a whole course in physical oceanography to really understand this um, but because it has to do with the whole global ocean circulation, what causes this upwelling along, along the coasts. But um, I'm going to show you how this works in this movie, or a little movie. So uh, I guess that's as dark as we're going to get. It, it, this is a, a cross section of a coastal ocean. So here's the, the coast, coastline. Here's the surface of the ocean. Um, and these little molecules here are, are are CO2, and there's a blue. Can you see blue? This is probably not going to work because of this filming. Well, we'll see what happens. Okay, so I'm going to go through it in a still, and then I'll show the movie. Um, but what you're going to see is these the blue patch upwelling along the coast here, and the CO2 molecules are coming up with it, and then. Okay, here's the blue. That's nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, etc. The wind is blowing offshore, causing the surface waters to move in that direction. They have to be replaced by something, so we're bringing the deep water up to replace that moving surface water. And, and as that comes up, the CO2 comes up and is released. And then you have a phytoplankton bloom from the nutrients, and then the CO2 is sucked back in again, and you have oxygen going out. And 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 here it goes, the movie. Upwelling, the movie. Um, there, there comes the CO2. Here are the nutrients. And now we're going to have a big, oh, CO2 out, CO2 back in. These are phytoplankton, these green blobs. That's a bloom. So, you have now the phytoplankton falling, big bloom, organic carbon going down uh, and being regenerated. So, it's a very dynamic system. And that's why you have a lot of high intensity fisheries along the coasts, uh, especially the western coasts of, of continents, because of this upwelling. There's lots of nutrients, lots of phytoplankton, lots of fish. Um, a dramatic. Uh, Example of the, the power of the surface currents and how they affect upwelling is this phenomenon called El Nino. And I don't have time to, I think I'll skip this slide. You don't have it on your, you don't have it in, in, in the handout anyway. But here's an animation um, showing the changes in the productivity. In the Pacific Ocean along the equator, here's an El Nino year, and I'll explain how that works in a minute. But there's a normal year where you have these phytoplankton blooms, and let's look at it in a in this. You've seen this one before, but let's look at it more closely. There's the equatorial bloom caused by upwelling along the equator. In a normal year, and as we go around, this is like three years in the life of a globe, um, see there's high productivity at the Amazon where the amazon's emptying now we're going to zoom in here, and this is a normal year, and that 's an El Nino year. you see there's very little productivity and there's very little upwelling along the coast here um, and that El Nino is um, in Spanish means the it means, what does it mean? Less young boy. It, it refers to the Christ child because this, this happens uh, around Christmas time roughly every seven years. And what happens in that phenomenon is that it's turned out that people have, have studied it now for years. It's a global phenomenon in which the, the prevailing currents in the, in the whole Pacific Ocean shift. From going in this direction, which causes the upwelling here, to going in this direction, uh, which brings warm water, suppressing the upwelling and reducing the the nutrient input into the system. Um, Okay, so here's an El Nino year and directly compared to a non El Nino year. And that's all due to physical forces changing the nutrient delivery. So here's equatorial upwelling, and then finally, on a global scale over very long periods of time you can imagine that that these upwelling events <coughs> would not be enough to re- To bring the collect, you have this constant rain of organic matter coming from the surface waters and this nutrient reservoir in the deep waters. None of these upwelling events are enough to bring all that back and renew the system. So you need a bigger force than that on a global scale over long time periods. And that is what's called the great oceanic conveyor belt. And this is really important because I think people think of the oceans as a static, understandably. You look out there, it looks like. A bunch of water with the surface waters and with the deep waters. And if you throw something in the deep water, it's going to stay there and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Like they, a lot of people want to bury nuclear waste in the deep water. Um, <clears throat> and the point is that that's not true. The oceans are all interconnected. And there's this, if, if I'm a water molecule, the average amount of time I, and I'm traveling with the currents, over a thousand years, I will make this this whole journey where. I go along the surface waters, and then I get to the North Atlantic. And because the waters are cooled, and there's very high winds in the North Atlantic, uh, you have cold water, and the high winds cause high evaporation, so you have saltier water. So, cold, salty water up here sinks. And that actually is a force that drives this whole global circulation. And so I'm cruising along here, I get here, and I sink, and then I go for this long journey down the bottom. and of course it's much more complicated than this. this is grossly oversimplified, but I go this long journey to the bottom of the Atlantic, these deep ocean currents, and then somewhere along the line, I get brought up again I, through zones of upwelling here, or maybe I would meander up here and get brought up again. Um, I'm just one atom, this on average. Um, so through these these global ocean currents the deep water eventually comes up to the surface bringing those nutrients back where it comes in contact with the light and the phytoplankton and they photosynthesize and they take up the nutrients and they make organic carbon and it all settles down again and to the bottom so it's a cycle and if you didn't have that the thing would run down if you didn't have the deep water eventually coming up somewhere this system would just run down and you'd have a big anoxic bottom of the ocean, um, and who knows what would happen. Uh, so this is really important. Okay. So finally, um, I've talked about nutrients just in general, but what nutrients are the most important? Uh, and it turns out that there are some nutrients that are in much less supply than are required by the the plants. And this is what's called, so what nutrients are important? Now, of course, they're all important, but some are more important in regulation than others. And there's, there's something called the law of the minimum. And it states that the growth of a plant, Will be limited by that element that is in least supply relative, this is the important part relative to. The requirements of the plant, or the phytoplankton. When I say plant, it could be a phytoplankton, or a tree, or a plant, whatever. This is the, this is the important part. So, well, how do we figure out what the requirements for elements are of a plant? You might grab it, harvest it, grind it up, and measure the ratio of the elements in that plant. So, for example, if you do that for most plants, you get something on the order of 106, or at least for most phytoplankton, which are my plant, my preferred plant, you get a ratio of carbon to nitrogen to phosphorus of 106 atoms of carbon. For 16 nitrogen per one of phosphorus. So, this tells you in what ratio they need these elements in order to grow. So, then you look in the environment and you ask um, what are the ratios available. So, say if the water has a ratio of What is going to be the most limiting element in that system for that plant? Exact, exactly, nitrogen. And, alternatively, you could have something like this. And what would be limiting there? Phosphorus limits. And it turns out that in most aquatic ecosystems, um, for now, we're going to say that nitrogen and phosphorus are the important limiting factors. Uh, And just to show you again that that ecologists do experiments, here's an experimental lakes area in Ontario where there are 22 different lakes set aside for research. And in this particular a set of lakes. This is a control lake and this is the experimental lake. They added phosphorus to this lake. Um, and you can see the, the phytoplankton bloom by only adding phosphorus. They didn't add anything else. And that means that phosphorus was in least supply, least supply relative to the other nutrients. But the interesting thing that happened here was that when they added the phosphorus, that makes phosphorus in great abundance relative to nitrogen. And what that did was made nitrogen the limiting factor, and when nitrogen's the limiting factor, what organisms might have an advantage? We t- we talked about them. Yeah, there you go, nitrogen-fixing organisms. So if nitrogen's limiting, only organisms that can take it from the atmosphere. Can get, the nitrogen, get more nitrogen than the other organisms. So they're favored, and what, what happens is you fertilize with phosphorus and you get blooms of nitrogen fixing organisms. It's really an interesting uh, phenomenon. But nitrogen and phosphorus are, are, one or the other is limiting in, in lakes. And in large areas of the oceans, nitrogen and phosphorus are also limiting. Except, we've learned recently that there are areas of the oceans where iron is actually a limiting factor. And this was an experiment that was done by oceanographers. Um, This is, there's Alaska, just to get you oriented. This is the North Pacific, where they went out with a boat and they made a patch. They added iron just to a a patch of ocean. And I, I, I can tell you about this. We were involved in some of these experiments. This is about 10, started out with a 10 kilometer by 10 kilometer patch. And showed that if you add iron, you get a bloom of phytoplankton, and this is a satellite image of that phytoplankton bloom. And in the last lecture, I'm going to tell you all all about those iron fertilization um, experiments and the implications for um, for how we're going to use the oceans in future. So take-home messages. We'll talk about them next time. You can take them home, but. Uh, I don't want to keep you over.